I was absolutely certain that the pro-life movement I was a part of, that we were utterly nonviolent. And then there came one uh, killing, and then came others, until finally there came one in my hometown. Welcome to Grace and 30 on WERALP, Arlington 96.7 FM, and streaming at WERA.FM. This is Ed Malik, and I'll be your host for the program tonight. Tonight's guest has experienced three significant conversions in his life, from Jewish roots to Christianity, from a pure faith to a highly political one, and from the religious right to the simplicity of the gospel. Once a radical anti-abortion activist, Today, he works to liberate the evangelical community from the grips of extreme politics and urges Washington conservatives to move beyond tribalism and the politics of hate, fear, and violence. Rob Schenk describes himself as a recovering member of the religious right, and his most recent book, Costly Grace, describes how he broke free from his descent into radical politics through humility, self-reflection, and a return to the essence of the gospel. Rob, welcome to Grace in 30. Thanks, Ed. It's a pleasure to join you. The word evangelical, it's become a four-letter word to some people. And and my question is, what's happened to many of the people who are supposed to be sharing good news with the world? Well, I think, first of all, we've lost connection with our past. The evangelical past is really, I would argue, a very good one. We were once the early abolitionists in America, uh, working for the eradication of slavery. Uh, We once were huge humanitarians, uh, building and maintaining hospitals, orphanages for abandoned children, all kinds of benevolence programs. Uh, An evangelical church was a place where most anyone would be welcomed and find a home. In fact, one of our most, uh, uh, I guess, energetic branches, Pentecostalism, uh, started in this country in a one of the very early um, integrated religious movements uh, out in California, where a blind black preacher partnered up with a white woman organist and led a revival called the Azusa Street Revival, which still today carries momentum. Uh, And so we were an interracial church. Uh, We were the first religious bodies in America or among the first religious bodies to ordain women to full, uh, you know, ordained ministry. So we really have a very rich history. And then something went terribly wrong. And I'm tempted to locate that as recently as the 1970s. But really, I'd go back to the 1870s, to the middle of, or uh, to the end of the uh, the 19th century, when evangelicalism gained the ascendancy in the United States, culturally, uh, politically. You had a president, Theodore Roosevelt, that left his Dutch Reformed Church 
to join a Methodist church, quintessential evangelicalism at the time, because it was the more popular religion for a politician to identify with. And that started a decline in the in the spiritual, moral, ethical character of evangelicalism. And a hundred years later, it would begin a severe decline that I would say uh, has reached now its all-time nadir. But I still have hopes about evangelicalism because I still believe in the evangel, which comes from the New Testament Greek word euangelion, meaning good news. I think it still has good news at its core. It's just there's been a lot of accretions, a lot of uh, detritus that has, uh, uh, you know, stuck to that core and obscured it. We've lost sight of it. In many ways, we've lost sight of our moral compass, and that has put us in deep, deep crisis, but not one that I don't think we can eventually recover from. I'm going to read a scripture for you. And, and I, I read this recently. I was going through the scriptures and I read through the, the whole Bible over the past year plus. And I came across this one scripture that said, again and again, you remind me of your sin and your guilt. You don't even try to hide it. And everything you do, your sins are obvious for all to see. Do you think of anyone when I say that scripture? Well, you know, the, the right thing to do is think first of myself. And there was a time when I was uh, conducting myself in flagrante uh, without apology, um, obnoxiously violating ethical boundaries, uh, arguably moral boundaries uh, in one sense. I was certainly playing favoritism uh, on every level, socially, politically, and religiously. So I was there. Uh, you know, I, I think St. Paul's guidance is the best when he says, when he called himself chief among sinners. So that's where I like to start. Uh, sadly, many of my closest friends, who are also my colleagues, uh, who are notable faces and voices within American evangelicalism uh, didn't, didn't choose the path that I chose to look deeply at my own failings, my own sins, and, and how uh, they've affected uh, many, many people for the worse. I'm glad I took that uh, road when I, when I faced a crossroads. I'm glad I took the path that I did. It's quite a lonely one. Uh, it's not very well populated, but Jesus uh, gave us warning of that. He said the road that leads to life is narrow and difficult, and few are those who find it. So expect to be alone when you're on that journey. And and I feel that some days. But I miss my companions, and I feel badly for many of them because demoralization is a, a form of suffering. Certainly many people suffer around you when you are acting in an unethical, immoral, uh, unspiritual, or even anti-Christian way. 
and I see plenty of my fellows doing that these days. But the perpetrator suffers as well, and and I feel badly, and and I would like to help. I have to offer that in a very humble sense. Nobody likes to be lectured or corrected, me included. Uh, but uh, yes, a few names do come to mind these days. So actually, I, I'm really glad you went in that direction because I, I was fishing with that question and, and you did what I'm, I like to do very often, which is to start off talking about ourselves, myself. Because mm. mm. unless all of us do that first, the odds of us turning things around are dramatically less. We have to mm. you know, see, ask God to show us what he wants us to see about ourselves and then give us the power to, to change it. And then secondly, help him, ask him to help us to see other people through graceful, forgiving eyes, the same eye, eyes that hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what mm-hmm. they're doing, right? Mm-hmm. And I told you, you know, before we started this interview about my story about uh, divorce and how I, the restoration of my marriage over a 10-year period, and it only happened when I cut the nonsense out of looking at my wife all the time and her faults and getting mad at them and her to me. And just simply saying, you know what, I, I've got major issues. I've got, I've got a plank in my eye, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I'm trying mm-hmm. to get out a speck in hers. And i got to focus on the plank. And then it just led to such a rich change in my life. It was un- unbelievable. I mean, things that used to be so important, I would get so worked up about. It's not a big deal anymore. So I'm really glad. And maybe this is a good time to talk a little bit about what you went through, what took you from that second stage where you were, you'd become sort of radical in your beliefs and, and your activism, and you came back to the, the essence of the gospel. Give us a little bit of that background to help us to understand how you confronted yourself with humility. Sure. Well, uh, it's going to sound like we're telling each other's stories here, <laughs> because uh, for me, it was a family story. The first crisis came in my own family. Uh, as I sensed, and uh, it was really a keen sense of the obvious to see how alienated I was becoming from my children, who saw, you know, my certitude and my, you know, decrees on what is right and what is wrong and who's in the right and who's in the wrong and why, uh, you know, uh, it's God's will that the United States prosecute a war in Iraq and then Afghanistan and things of that nature, which were outside uh, the creed, you know, that we knew uh, as our belief system as Christians. There nowhere in our statement of faith for the church we attended or uh, the Christianity that we espoused. My kids knew there was no. There was no article in our statement of faith that said, thou shalt prosecute wars in Iraq. Uh, That wasn't there. So when I pronounced my opinions on that as if they were doctrine, Christian doctrine, uh, it didn't do much to help foster, uh, you know, the bonds with my own children. So that was the first crisis. Then by extension, That was true for my wife, who was exasperated by my uh, pronouncements, my, my, uh, you know, papal-like decrees. 
and uh, and I had to, okay, so I stopped. Uh, I had always preached, what does it profit a man if he gained the whole world but lose his family? So I started looking critically at what was going wrong in my family. I was leading a national Christian ministry organization. I was preaching in hundreds of pulpits every year. I was doing countless interviews on Christian television and radio. Uh, I was publishing books and on and on it goes. But my family was disintegrating in terms of the love bond between us. And I thought, well, something's not right here. And I eventually uh, acquiesced to my wife's pleadings that we go together to see a Christian counselor. And I checked his credentials to be sure that, you know, his CV uh, indicated that he was, in fact, a Christian counselor. But it turned out he was just a good counselor, a very good one. And at one point, uh, he helped me to start uh, using sentences that begin with I instead of you, him, her, they, which was pretty standard language for me for 35 years, uh, both in the pulpit and, and in my home. And that that was the beginning of it. It was something like learning what that parable of the tax collector and the, and the Pharisee is, is really all about. And it's about humility. And humility was not a character quality I spent much time cultivating, but I came to see it as critical, uh, life or death for everything that's valuable for myself, for my relationship to God, for my relationship to my wife, to my children, even to my friends and strangers. So I really worked on humility. And, you know, that really shouldn't be hard for evangelicals because our whole faith journey begins at the altar, literally or figuratively speaking, when we say, I am a sinner. That, that takes a lot of humility to admit that if you really believe it, if you're sincere about it. You have to say, I'm totally wrong on everything. And that should, we have to return there time and time again as Christians. So that was the start of it. It, it, it got much more complicated than that, but, but that was the starting place. So there was also uh, an OBGYN who was killed by an extremist, someone who was on, on the anti-abortion side of the spectrum. And that, that had a shaking effect too, didn't it? Was, when did that happen as you were trying to sort of face the truth about yourself and, and rebuild your relationship with your family? At what point in the middle of that did this occur? Well, actually, that had happened before, and I harbored it as a, a reason to doubt myself, but I, I compartmentalized it, as we say. You know, it was sort of over in a box on a shelf. I didn't forget that it was there. I was conscious that it was there, and, and this is how it happened. I was absolutely certain 
in the mid-1990s that the pro-life movement I was a part of, which was the very visible uh, branch. I mean, we moved, I, I was in charge of events that mobilized literally thousands of people to blockade clinics, shut down entire cities, uh, whole, you know, interstate arteries, gain uh, national headlines on every platform imaginable, uh, captured the attention of the highest levels of elected and appointed officials. You know, it was a significant national movement. And I was right at the top, uh, making, you know, the, the top decisions in that movement. And I was absolutely certain that we were utterly nonviolent. No one in our ranks would contemplate using violence. Although, as time went on, I certainly used violent language. Some of our people started shoving uh, their opponents in the street. Then came the face-to-face -face shouting matches, uh, threats from both sides. Um, and... I was certain, though, we would never cross the threshold into lethal violence. And then there came one uh, killing in Florida, was the first one. And I remember saying, that that's not us, that's somebody else. But when I made the phone calls to say, who knows what's going on down there from New York at the time, I was headquartered in New York State, and I called Florida and when they told me the names of the people who were present and the guy who did the shooting, who was with them, it was part of our, he was part of our movement. The, the murderer was part of our movement. And then came others until finally there came one in my hometown back then, Buffalo, New York, Dr. Barnett Slepian, with whom I had had many face-to-face -face encounters, who was shot through his dining room window in front of his wife and two young sons, bled out on the dining room floor after having come home from synagogue where he had uh, performed yard site or the ritual memorial for his deceased late father. And there he was bleeding out on his floor in front of his wife and his two young sons. And I was absolutely certain that was an invader, an intruder, somebody who had come into our movement who was unknown and did not know us or what we stood for. But later someone sent me a, a photo of a news conference and he's standing just one person removed from me in the lineup. He was very much in our movement. And that was very, very disturbing to me. And it did shake my certainty about what we were doing and how we were doing it. But it would take another 10 years before I dared allow myself to really question that seriously. So this might be a good segue. I'm, I'm gonna read to you a quote from someone. I've, I watched a video. Maybe it's not a quote. I may paraphrase a bit. 
But it said in the span of a single presidential election cycle, white evangelicals went from being the most likely to say that a politician's morality matters to the least likely to say so. This is shocking. There's ex- very quick, extreme changes occurring. And there's a lot of talk that's that's kind of, you know, inciting uh, unrest and even violence that's going on in politics now. And and you were in a situation where you, you realize, looking back, you were saying things that, that triggered folks. Are you are you almost seeing a flashback to what you experienced? And 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 is it something that's actually worse in any sense? And is it accelerating faster than what you had experienced before? Uh, well, yes, yes, and yes. Uh, yes, it is a flashback. Uh, yes, it is worse. And yes, it is accelerating uh, far, far, uh, in a far greater momentum. Uh, and, and for a lot of reasons, I think. There's a long history of religious communities across the spectrum certainly within Christianity, but outside of Christianity as well, where religious groups trade the transcendent, meaning the heavenly, the godly, the ideal, if you will, for the temporal or the earthly or uh, the expedient. Um, Long histories of that going back into time immemorial. And the outcome is always equally disastrous for those communities. And I, th- I see now that American evangelicalism, and I make a distinction, that American evangelicalism is its own peculiar strain. I serve today as an advisor to the World Evangelical Alliance. We represent 600 million evangelicals worldwide. And there are plenty of Bible-believing, born-again, evangelical Christians in places like Africa, Asia, and even Europe, who look over and say, we don't even know what you guys are over there. You don't look like evangelicals. You don't look like Bible believers. We're not sure what you are. They're very confused because we are, a, on the whole, there are exceptions, of course, and maybe even the majority of evangelicals in America are not American evangelicals. They are not part of this peculiar species or strain. But what we've done is we've combined historical kind of American nativism with Southern religion, which would go to the antebellum South, Uh, and a a kind of uh, puritanical fundamentalism, uh, and and we've created our own religion. And it's, again, it has a a shadow of what we know to be the evangel, the gospel, the good news of God's love for the whole world, all of it, not just a slice of it, not just a type of, one type of person, but for all of humanity. That's the the heart. But again, it's so cluttered with all this other, these other layers that that have been wrapped around it. And sadly, one of those layers is indicated by our being, American evangelicals being the most 
the religious subpopulation most likely to defend unfettered gun rights under the Second Amendment and to possess firearms. So you put all that together, lethal firepower. I preached in one very large evangelical church out West where the pastor said to me, now don't mention your position on guns here because at any given time there are 50 people in front of you who are armed and I don't know what they might do. And he was talking about his own people. And then he told me, but we're not as bad as the Baptist church down the road that keeps a thousand rounds in the church basement to protect itself against federal agents when that starts to happen. So we can be a a kind of dangerous, volatile, and unpredictable bunch. And and when we're armed, uh, you know, uh, to the teeth, we become that much more dangerous. And and I'm seeing that now. Uh, in fact, I have right behind me, I wish we were on video because I would show it to you. I have a Bible case, very lovely one, one like many evangelicals carry, leather with a zipper, uh, has holy Bible, uh, you know, uh, in silver letters embossed on the front of it. It's really a lovely protective cover for any study Bible. But when you open it up, there's no room for Holy Scripture to be contained in it. All that's there is a holster for a semi-automatic weapon and a, a little clip to hold an additional magazine so that you have enough ammo with you to take care of things. So you go into the church looking like you're holding a Bible, but you're actually holding uh, a, a Sig Sauer 226 semi-automatic or you know a nine millimeter. You know, I talk about trading uh, the, the, the transcendent for the worldly. I, it's, Indeed. Uh, um, it's amazing. So we've got about another minute, minute and a half. I'm going to try to wrap up with you. I want you to share. Is there something that you really would like to share with listeners that's really on your heart, if you can do that in 60 seconds or so? And then we're going to continue the interview beyond that for the podcast. But what is really, would you like to just make sure you share with people right now and feel is most important that they hear? Evangelical Christians have always said that we are Jesus-centered. It's Jesus and me. We don't have anything else. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It's critically important that we go back to Jesus, his message, his model, his method, I call it the Christ hermeneutic. The key to interpreting everything is the life, the person, the words of Jesus Christ, period. Anything else is clutter and distraction. Let's go back to Jesus and use it as a test and say, does this comport with the person, the message, the model, of Jesus Christ, our only Lord and Savior. I think that'll save us from a lot of heartache, and it will save others from it as well. Rob, thank you so much for joining us. If people would like to find out more about his work, they can visit him on the web at revrobshank.com. That's R-E-V-R-O-B-S-C-H-E-N-C-K.com. 
Well, I'm going to continue this interview on the podcast at uh, grayson30.com, but I'm going to sign off for now from the radio station. This is Ed and Rob signing off from Grayson 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Have a great night and be sure to tune into Grace.